Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. You know, if you think about it, the church is a little bit like NASA, isn't it? Maybe a lot a bit like NASA. And what I mean is the church with its urgent global mission to reach the world for Christ, has a profound resemblance to NASA in its mission to explore the universe. You see, there is a, there is a profound correlation between those two things. And as you know, NASA is the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And on the other hand, the church is the Global Evangelistic and Kingdom Administration. You see, we literally exist as the church for the imperial majesty of Jesus Christ and for the glory of his invincible sovereign empire. You see, NASA exists for space exploration. We exist for gospel exploration. Instead of reaching the moon, we reach the nations. Instead of claiming territory out there for the glory of America, we instead claim redeemed souls out there for the glory of Christ. They use billions and billions of tax dollars to fund their little projects. We use the word of God, which is the most lethal instrument of change known to man. They launch rockets made of clunky metal, we launch living, breathing ambassadors of the risen Christ to infiltrate the darkness and find God's elect by the proclamation of the gospel. So can you hear what I'm saying to you, Christ community? I want us to be NASA. I want us to be a training Sending, discipling, risk-taking launch site for global ministry. I want this church to be a church that causes ripple effects into eternity. And I believe with all my heart that by God's grace and for his glory, we can be that. It is literally there for the taking. The catch is, the catch is we will only be NASA we will only reach the moon, as it were, and accomplish our mission as a church if and only if we are a healthy church first. But the question is, what is it exactly that even constitutes what a healthy church is? I mean, what does a healthy church even look like? And I'm so glad you asked because that is exactly why Paul's letter to Titus is in your Bibles. You see, you know by now, you know well that the reason why Titus is in your Bibles is that what it is, is the blueprints for a healthy church. In other words, if you want this church to be a recovery room for ransom sinners and recovering idolaters, if you want this church to be a global outpost of joy in a world of despair, if you want this church to make an impact for eternity, and I know you do, then Titus is the raw materials with which you do that. 
And although there are lots of things on the list you need to have a healthy church, one of the indispensable components you need for a healthy church, get this now, is when men and women, husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, young and old, fulfill their God-ordained roles in the church. In other words, the church It's not an ice cream shop where everybody kind of gets to pick their favorite flavor and make it all about their preferences. No, the church is a battalion of souls fighting together in the trenches of the Great Commission. That is the church. To put it another way, NASA can only reach the moon and fulfill their calling if everyone at NASA knows what the mission is and they know what their calling is. And believe it or not, Every single one of your particular callings in the Great Commission. What God is calling each of you to be in this galactic mission called the Great Commission. Believe it or not, it is all found in Titus chapter 2. This is an incredible chapter. This is incredible because Paul identifies five groups of people, five groups of people within a local church, and Paul tells Titus how each one of those groups can maximize their lives for the glory of Christ. And Paul identifies older men and older women and young women and young men and slaves. And he spells out exactly how each one of these particular groups can be used in particular to advance the Great Commission. This is incredible. So let's put it this way. Titus is the playbook. Titus 2 is the playbook and the personalized game plan for how your life can be used to make Christ's community a church that causes ripple effects into eternity. And so this morning... Paul gets to the first group that he wants to shepherd and who it is is none other than older men. Older men, in other words, those seasoned, more senior, gray-headed men of this church, 50-ish and up. I just want you to know that Paul wants you to know that old dogs can learn new tricks. (laughs) And Paul's got a few tricks up his sleeve to teach you, so here we go. Titus chapter 2, here's where we're going. If you like outlines, I have one. I want you to see from our text this morning four indispensable qualities. Four indispensable qualities needed by every older man to display Christ and make an impact for eternity. That's where we're going. Four indispensable qualities of old needed by every older man to display Christ and make an impact for eternity. And so, here we go. Indispensable quality number one. An older man must be temperate. An older man must be a temperate man. Now, what that means and why it's a big deal, we're going to get to that, but I want you to notice first what Paul does in verse 1. Look at the text. Paul says, But you, Titus, speak, literally, be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Now, you notice, don't you, the head-on collision in the, head-on collision in the text? He says, But you, Titus... 
In contrast to the very kinds of people I just spoke about, you be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And what kind of people did Paul just speak about? Well, we saw them, didn't we, in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16? Rebellious, empty talkers, deceivers, false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing, infiltrating the church, bringing false teaching that brings chaos and ruins people's lives. Chapter 1, verse 13, rebuke them, Titus. But don't only rebuke them, do the opposite of them. Because they come to destroy. You exist, Titus, and every elder throughout history. You exist to heal and to repair and to restore. But to restore people with what? To repair people with what? To heal people with what? Band-aids and medication? No. What did verse 1 just say? Be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Isn't that interesting? As the people emerge out of the womb with their souls mangled by sin, and yet sound doctrine is the solution. Sound doctrine is the cure. Theology is the therapy. Truth is the treatment. Because here's the funny thing about that word sound. It literally means healthy. That's what the term means. Fit, trim, Strong, vigorous, nourishing, wholesome, and life-giving. And the fact that Paul uses the term five times in this letter gives a little bit of an indication of what the letter to Titus is designed to produce, namely healthy churches. And the thing about healthy doctrine doesn't just mean that it's accurate, but that it has the power to make you healthy. It has the power to make you well. To literally reverse the effects of sin on your soul and conform you into the image of Christ. That's called sanctification. So understand this. This church can only be as healthy as its doctrine is deep. So the only kind of church that changes the world is a healthy church in which the members in it have been transformed by truth. And so, Titus, you and every elder throughout history be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. But this raises the question, doesn't it? What exactly is sound doctrine designed to produce in the lives of Titus's people? I mean, I mean what, what, what exactly, I mean, if, if doctrine is way more than the mere dispensing of raw theological data, and it is, and, and if sound doctrine is designed to repair your soul so that you can fight in the trenches of the Great Commission, and it most certainly is, then what does sound doctrine produce in the lives of God's people? That's the question. For instance, in, say, older men, 50-ish and above, what does sound doctrine produce in them? Well, that's a great question. And Paul answers the question in verse 2. Look at the text. But you, Titus, be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. Okay, sounds good, but to produce what? To produce what in who? Verse 2, older men are to be temperate. 
They are to be dignified. They are to be sober-minded, and they are to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. So, older men, do you see it? You are in the text. This is God's will for your life. And younger men who will be old one day, this is the kind of man you are to become. And there are four qualities on the list. And you can see that the first quality is that older men are to be temperate. They're to be temperate men. And maybe your version says self-controlled. Maybe it says sober-minded, whatever you call it. And however you translate it, Paul is talking about a man who is not a pinball machine of unpredictable emotions. In other words, to be a temperate man means that he is stable, He is balanced, he is level-headed, he's clear-minded and composed. He's not easily driven to excessive emotional extremes. He's not volatile or unpredictable or explosive. He's not a loose cannon. He doesn't fly off the handle. He doesn't make erratic, impulsive decisions out of emotion that bring his life into chaos. He's got his emotions and his passions and his cravings. He's got those things under control. They don't tell him what to do. He tells them what to do. And so older men, 50-ish and above, since Paul is singling you out, I'm just going to follow his lead and I'm going to ask you, are you a temperate man? Are you a stable man? Are you level-headed, clear-minded, and composed? Are you a slave to your appetites and cravings? Are you unstable or unpredictable? Are you driven to excessive emotional extremes? Do you have the propensity to make erratic, impulsive decisions out of emotion that bring your life and your family into chaos? And I know that's a lot to wrestle with, but the real question that I want to ask to every single one of you is, do you know the root of being intemperate? In other words, do you know what's going on in the soul of someone who is emotionally unstable? Do you know what's going on in your soul when you are emotionally unstable? Because I suppose at this point, someone could raise the objection, look, is emotional stability really that big of a deal? I mean, okay, so someone's a little emotionally unstable or imbalanced. So what? In the grand scheme of things that people could struggle with, this is is pretty small potatoes, isn't it? I mean, this isn't murder. This isn't adultery. This isn't dealing drugs. I mean, this is not that big of a deal, is it? And that depends. It depends on what it is that's causing the emotional instability. Because isn't it interesting to you that the 21st century, which is the most technologically advanced and self-esteem driven culture in history, isn't it interesting to you that it is also the most depressed and medicated and suicidal? Isn't that interesting to you? It's true, almost 79 million Americans are taking psychiatric drugs. 
15 million Americans suffer with some kind of persistent depression. 48% of all Americans have visited a mental health specialist or psychiatrist. The suicide rate has increased 30% since the year 2000. There are 42,773 suicides every single year in America. Don't understand what I'm saying. I'm not knocking you at all if you struggle with depression because I have been there. I am not critiquing you at all if you have needed medication or if you have needed to get help from a specialist. I get that. I'm just saying it doesn't add up. We should be the happiest culture in history and yet we are the most emotionally imbalanced and miserable. And so my point is, there is a biblical explanation for all of our emotional instability. There is a biblical explanation for why we are the way we are. Do you want to hear what it is? When an older man, or anyone for that matter, is intemperate, it's because, get this now, it's because they are way too dependent upon people, circumstances, or temporal pleasures to provide what only God can supply. In other words, people are emotionally unstable because they constantly look to things for ultimate meaning and significance and satisfaction that were never, ever designed to provide it. Like relationships, like wealth, like circumstances like their careers, like their health, like success or popularity or security or family or anything other than God. Don't you see the deepest cause of our emotional instability in our lives is because we look to other things to supply what God alone can provide. And that only results in chaos and anxiety and despair. And yet what this does, what this does is make the cure to all of our emotional instability blatantly obvious, doesn't it? Because in answer to the question, okay, how do you become free from fear and anxiety that suffocates our joy? How do you become free from those things? The answer is this. True mental health comes only when we fix our highest hopes on permanent, unchanging realities upon which we can bank everything. That's the truth. Like what, for instance? Well, how about the absolute supremacy of God over everything? That is certain. How about the salvation that Christ purchased with his death in our place? That is secure. How about the certainty of his kingdom and your eternal inheritance in that kingdom? That is guaranteed. You see, those things are certain. Those things are stable. Those things are unshakable. Those things are guaranteed. You see, if you are in Christ this morning, you are not a client or a project or a problem to be solved. You are sons and daughters of the living God and he has worked in history through Christ to give you gifts predestined for you that you have never even dreamed. 
the kingdom is yours. Christ is yours. God is yours. Salvation is yours. Paradise is yours. I mean, can you think of any privilege in the universe more advantageous to you than being sons and daughters of the living God? And you see, when you can, gra- when you can grapple with that and be gripped by that, then you and I will be emotionally stable. And that brings us to indispensable quality number two. An older man must be dignified An older man must be a dignified man. And I don't know if you know what what an oxymoron is, but an oxymoron is a phrase or it's a a figure of speech that is self-contradictory. In other words, you, you take two apparently contradictory words and you combine them together to make a word that if you really look at what it says, it doesn't actually make any sense at all. For instance, bitter, sweet, Clearly confused, deafening silence, growing smaller, jumbo shrimp, (laughs) abundant poverty, alone together, active retirement, business casual, my favorite, climb down, and I think there is a biblical one you could add to the list, undignified older men. That's an oxymoron. Doesn't roll off the tongue very well, but it, but it is an oxymoron nevertheless. You see, an older man in Christ who is undignified is a contradiction in terms, and we know that because it's on the list. Look at verse 2. Paul says that older men are to, to display the glory of Christ in, in lots of ways, not the least of which they are to be temperate, that is, emotionally unstable and level headed and wise, and second, Older men are to be dignified. Men of dignity, men of distinction, men of gravity and profound respectability. What's interesting to me is that when it comes to lists in the New Testament, like lists of moral virtues, we kind of just assume that there's this this random laundry list of items that Paul just kind of threw on there with no sense of purpose or order or direction, right? We just kind of assume that you could rearrange the list in any order and it would say the exact same thing to which I replied, not so fast. Not so fast. See, our belief in inspiration applies even to the order of the words as they occur in the text. See, what I'm saying is these terms are intentionally ordered by Paul. What I'm saying is there is a cause and effect relationship between temperance and dignity. And I think the point is, if you are a temperate man, you will be a dignified man. In other words, if you've got your emotions and passions and cravings under control and you don't make a bunch of stupid decisions out of emotion and you're not not always flying off the handle, you will be a man of profound respectability. You will be a dignified man. And yet the question is, what does it mean to be dignified and how do you even become a dignified man? Because maybe for some to be a dignified man kind of sounds like some stuffy, smug, stodgy person with no sense of humor. That's not what Paul means. To be dignified doesn't mean that you're pompous or proud or 
unemotional. And it certainly doesn't mean that you are dull or boring. In fact, I would argue that the most dignified men are the most godly men, and the most godly men are, should be the most interesting men on the face of the planet. Rather, to be a dignified man, get this, speaks about a man who's just got something different about his life. It's that there's a, a weight and a gravitas about his life. That he's got the fragrance of eternity about him. An aura of the transcendent, if you will, the afterglow of the divine. Like I've said before, this is a man who, like Moses, up on the mountain, that it is so obvious to everyone who knows him that that man has been long and often in communion with the living God. This is not a man who dribbles his life away with hobbies and, and catnaps and television. No, this is a man who you might say he has a refined taste for things of eternal value. This is the kind of man whose life is so commendable and admirable. His, his life and his character and his words and his insights and his holiness and his reverence for God's word makes you not only want to be with him, it makes you want to be like him. Do you know anyone like that? And don't misunderstand, I'm not talking about a sinless man. He has certainly got his faults, and yet even the way he repents of his sin is part of what it is that makes him dignified. And you might be thinking, well, is this just kind of something that comes with age? I mean, isn't every older man a, a dignified man? To which I reply, not even close. This is not natural. This is profoundly supernatural. Older does not necessarily mean wiser, case in point. The first church in which I served as a pastor in Tacoma, there was an older man, poor guy. And for whatever reason, he was given a special room in the basement of the church filled with stuff for his hobbies. Puppets, model trains, toys, trinkets, little knickknacks for his magic tricks. And every day he was in the basement of the church just tinkering and tinkering and napping and tinkering and doing absolutely nothing. Now, I hesitated using that example for fear that it would sound kind of critical and you'd kind of have to be there to see how undignified it was. And I am not saying there's anything wrong with hobbies or model trains, although I don't share the enthusiasm for model trains. But forgive me for saying there is something wrong, something not quite right with spending your last days on the planet playing with toys before you meet the king. So older men of Christ's community, are you dignified men? Are you just kind of tinkering around, twiddling your thumbs before you meet the king? I mean, is there anything about your life that has a heavenly, transcendent quality to it? Is your life admirable and commendable and worthy of imitation? Because I'll just tell you, older men, we need you to be our sages we need you to be our sages who bleed Bible and who can teach us how to live lives of eternal significance for the Great Commission. 
older men, I just want you to know, you are the closest thing to the apostles that we've got. We need you to disciple us and to train us and to invest in us to live radical, transform lives that make an impact for eternity. And I know that's loaded, I know that's loaded, and no one does that perfectly, but I think the question is, how do you even become this kind of man? How, how, do, you, how do you become a dignified person? Because younger men and everybody else, does it not burn in your soul to be this kind of person? So how do you become a dignified person? That's the question, and I think the answer is obvious. A man can only be dignified if he has tasted the transcendent. In other words, a man will only stop being childish and silly and selfish and immature when he has truly tasted what life is really about. And what life is really about is the God who never had a beginning. In other words, what I'm trying to say is that a man can only be as dignified as his view of God is profound. You see, you can't be a deep man or woman until you have climbed the towering heights of the supremacy of God. If you have scaled the Himalayas of Scripture and you have breathed the rarefied air of the supremacy of God over all things. Now, I am not saying that every guy has got to be super intellectual. I don't mean that at all. But I am saying that any dignified man has to be a man of the book. There ain't another way. There isn't another way to be dignified. If we want our lives to rise above the lukewarm mush of mediocrity and to be consumed in the flames of zeal for God's kingdom, then daily we must have long, long meditation upon who God is from the pages of Scripture. You don't have to be super smart. You just need to read slow and let the text transform your soul. Which brings us to indispensable quality number three. An older man must be sober-minded. An older man must be a sober-minded man. Look again at verse two. Paul says, but you, Titus, be speaking what is in accordance with sound doctrine. And that sounds great. But what is sound doctrine designed to produce in who? Great question. Sound doctrine should produce older men who are temperate, older men who are dignified, and not only that, older men who are sober-minded. Did you hear that? Older men, younger men, and everybody else, you are to be sober-minded. Minded. And I think it's very interesting how many times Paul uses this term in the letter to Titus. Isn't it interesting to you? Chapter 1, verse 8, elders are to be sober-minded. Here, older men are to be sober-minded. Chapter 2, verse 6, 5, younger women are to be sober-minded. Chapter 2, verse 6, younger men are to be sober-minded. Chapter 2, verse 12, it says that all of us are to live soberly as we live in the present age as we await the arrival of the king. So whatever it means to be sober-minded, it is central even to what it looks like to be a Christian. 
And yet what inquiring minds want to know is, is what does it mean to be a sober-minded person? Older men, 50-ish and above, what does it mean? What does it look like to be a sober-minded man? And, and I've said this before, but the opposite of being sober-minded is to be drunk-minded. And you know, you know that to be a drunk-minded man typically means that he is impulsive, driven more by feelings, than by facts. To be drunk-minded means you have a hard time sticking to commitments. Means probably you have a hard time, you, that you are uh, easily trapped by your own appetites and cravings. The non-sober-minded person lacks discernment and objectivity. They're hasty in their decisions. They lack the ability to see the long-term effects of their decisions before they make them. They're easily sucked into Stupid ideas, philosophies, conspiracy theories, theological hobby horses. In other words, drunk-minded people have very, very little control over their thought lives. And so older men, younger men who will be older one day and everybody else, are you a sober-minded person? Are you a sober-minded person? And, and you remember the last time I, I preached on this, back in chapter one, I, I raised the question. Do you remember what the secular psychiatric world calls bipolar or addictions or obsessive compulsive behavior or ADHD or anxiety disorders or panic attacks? The question is, did you know that there is a biblical cure for those kinds of things? There is. And if you were asked the Apostle Paul, what is the cure for those kinds of things, maybe he'd say medication. Maybe. But medication or not, what he would definitely say is that the cure for those kinds of things is to be a sober-minded person. So the question is, how the heck do you even become a sober-minded person? Older men, how do you become a temperate, dignified, sober-minded man that makes an impact for eternity? That is the question. And the answer is this. You ready to listen very carefully. To be a sober-minded person means that you have a firm grip on reality. That's all it is. To be a sober-minded person means that you have a firm grip on reality, but here's the catch. Reality is not always how you feel in the midst of your circumstances. Rather, reality is what God is doing in human history. That is reality. And what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation. That is reality. And your lives are a part of that. To put it another way, reality is everything that Christ is and everything that Christ accomplished. Reality is everything that you have in Christ. That is reality. And that's true no matter what you feel. So you see, Yoda thought it was a good idea to rely on our feelings. The Apostle Paul thinks it's a better idea to rely on truth. 
Because you remember Ephesians 1.11, don't you? When Paul says that in Christ, in Christ we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Do you hear that? We were predestined and the fragile dust of our lives has been swept up into what God is doing in human history. I mean, this is the truth of Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things, all things for good, for those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. All things, really, yes, all things. Cancer, car wrecks, killers in Las Vegas, unemployment. When things are being shaken up in your life, it doesn't mean that God has abandoned you. It is just the opposite. God is at work. And when you feel that, when, when those are the lenses through which you interpret reality, you will be sober-minded. And so you can see here, can't you, the, the issue that Paul is shaping for us in the text? The issue is our thought lives. It's the first thing that comes into our minds when we are blindsided by the inconvenient and unexpected. How many of you have heard of the ancient form of execution called quartering? You ever hear that? Quartering. It's absolutely brutal. In the Middle Ages, to quarter someone was to dismember their arms and legs by tying them to four different horses and then having those horses run off in opposite directions at the exact same time. I mean, this is absolutely barbaric. And no, it's true, they don't practice execution by quartering anymore, but most of us, most of us are emotionally quartered hundreds of times a day, aren't we? I mean, we just can't get our thoughts straight. Our brain is pulled in, in, in a million different directions and we just need something to hold on to. We need something to anchor us. We need something to stabilize us. We need something to keep us sane. Well, what's going to do that? Maybe I could suggest to you that the only thing we can hold on to is the supremacy of God over everything. Maybe what we can hold on to is what God is doing in human history and what God is doing in human history is obtaining a bride of redeemed souls for his son from every nation. Maybe what God is doing in human history is working all things, all things for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Maybe what you can hold on to is all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished. Maybe what you can hold on to is everything you have have in Christ because when you cling to that then you will be sane and that brings us to indispensable quality number four last one for the day number four an older man must be spiritually fit an older man must be a spiritually fit man recently I read an article about 50 ways to have a great retirement or something like that. I'm not planning on retiring soon. It wasn't for my benefit. It was for something else, for you. And, and out of the 50 ways that this article described how to have a great retirement, get this, 34 of those ways talked about health and fitness and being 
in shape and well-being and by having a good diet. 34 out of the 50 ways talked about those kinds of things. And what does that, what, the sheer number of times that the word health occurs in the article implies what about the main point of the article? That health is the most important goal of life. And you want to know something? I completely agree. 100%. That health and fitness and well-being and a good diet and, and being in shape is the most important goal of life. I believe that and I do because Paul believed that. But of course the difference, however, is what kind of health you're talking about. Because what Paul means by health is soul health. Spiritual health, spiritual fitness and well-being in the soul, which is exactly what he describes at the end of verse 2. Look at the text. Elders are to be lots of things, lots of things, but at the very least, they must be temperate. They must be dignified. They must be sober-minded. Here it is. They must be sound in faith, sound in love, and sound in and perseverance. Now, if you look really closely at the text, you can see it. You can see with every quality that Paul puts on the list for older men that each one he gets deeper and deeper to the root. Can you see that? In other words, he starts at the outermost uh, display of who a man is, like his emotions, and then with every single quality moves deeper and deeper to the root that defines who he is. And the root that should define who an older man is, is spiritual health and fitness in the soul. And again, again, the thing about that word sound is that it literally means healthy. And yet you can see in the text that Paul has three realms, three spheres in which an older man is to be healthy. He says that, that older men must be healthy and fit and trim in faith, in love, in perseverance. What do these things mean? And why did Paul choose these things in particular? But he could have chosen other things instead or as well. Well, he chose these three particular things because if you are healthy in these three areas, not only will you be fulfilled personally, but you will be most effective for the glory of Christ in the Great Commission. So, the first realm in which older men are to be healthy, Paul says that men, older men, must be sound in faith. Older men must be sound in faith. As in, your faith is healthy. As in, you believe the right things. You see, one's faith is only as healthy as the object of their faith is biblical. And yet that raises the question, doesn't it? I mean, what, what even is biblical faith? I mean, what does it mean to believe? Because we use the terminology all the time, and yet do we actually know what it means to believe? And I think you'd probably agree with me that, that faith is not merely intellectual agreement with a set of historical facts. I mean, it is that, but it's not only that. And I think you'd also agree that faith is not merely the affirmation of something that you can't see. I mean, there is some truth to that, but that's not the whole truth. Rather, the whole truth is, is this. Authentic, biblical faith 
is to embrace Jesus Christ as infinitely glorious and supremely valuable to the degree that all other things are worthless in comparison. You see, faith is not a work with which we barter with God for salvation. No, faith is the broken-hearted admission that we are bankrupt and that we have nothing to offer God except the sins that need to be forgiven. Faith is where we clear all the other competitors off the shelf and we grab a hold of Christ alone as the one who made the solution for by the sacrifice of himself. That is faith. And to be sound in faith means that you are healthy in faith. And to be healthy in your faith means that you believe the right things. Which means that your faith is defined and determined not by your feelings and what you would like the text to say, but by what the text actually does say. And so older men in this church, are you sound in your faith? Do you believe the right things? Which means I'm asking, is your faith defined and determined by the sacred text of Holy Scripture? This is not a game. This means everything. And more importantly than that, men, do you treasure the things that you believe? Are they a delight to your soul? Because I pray for you every single week that you would be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all of the day. That is the essence of healthy faith. Number two, the second realm in which men are to be healthy, an older man must be sound in love. An older man must be sound in love because they say, don't they, you are what you eat truth is you are what you love you are what you love as in you are defined by and you become like the things you love the most see what Paul is after here is what a man treasures he's after what a man prizes he's after what a man delights in what exhilarates a man, what thrills a man, what captivates a man, what satisfies a man. The point is, older men should model for the rest of the church what it looks like to love the right things. And the right things are whatever God has declared in his word are the right things. And the first thing on the list is Christ and everything he accomplished. Christ is the treasure Christ is the prize. He is the fountain of living waters to the soul. To be sure, an older man can love other things than Christ. But what Paul is after is a man who loves all things in their right order, in their proper proportion. The 17th century Scottish pastor theologian Henry Scougal put it like this, the language is old and tricky but it's so worth it. Listen very carefully. He says, the worth and excellency of a soul is measured by the object of its love. He who loveth trivial and corrupt things doth thereby become base and vile. 
but a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and improve one's life into a conformity with the perfections which it loves. In other words, what you love is who you really are, and what you love the most you will begin to resemble. And so older men, soon to be older men and everybody else, do you love the right things? Do you love the right things? Are you healthy in what you love and in what you seek to be satisfied by? Older men of this church, we need you. We need you. We need you to model for us what it looks like to value what is supremely valuable to enjoy what is supremely enjoyable and to be satisfied by what is supremely satisfying. And that brings us to the third and final realm in which older men must be healthy. Older men must be sound in perseverance. They must be sound in perseverance. Look at the end of verse two. He tells Titus to speak the things that are in accordance with sound doctrine. And older men are to be, he says, as a result of sound doctrine, they are to be temperate, they are to be dignified, they are to be sober-minded, they are to be sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance. And third time's a charm. You know exactly what he means. He means that a man who is healthy perseveres in the right things. In other words, an older man is to be a man of conviction. He chooses the right things to be convicted by. He chooses the right things to be committed to. And then he pursues those things, even if it costs him his life. It's incredible. A man of conviction. You see, these are not flaky, unreliable, careless, or lazy men. These are men who, not, who don't piddle away their lives in some man cave somewhere. No, these are men who have a very ordered hierarchy of priorities in their lives, and they persevere in those things even until death. They don't waver in their faith, but through all temptations and persecutions and challenges, they cling to Christ with white-knuckled tenacity. So older men of this church, I just want you to know I'm not trying to guilt you this morning. It's just the opposite. I'm trying to inspire you. I'm trying to give you new lenses to see the awesome potential you have to be useful for the kingdom and to make a serious impact for the Great Commission, which is the only thing that really matters in the end. I want you to know that your golden years can be the sweetest of years as you train us to fight in the same trenches that you yourself have fought in. Older men of this church, we need you. We need you to be men who have one foot, as it were, already in heaven. To be men who have a refined taste for heavenly things. We need you to be men of the book who bleed Bible, who like Job, treasure the words of his mouth more than your necessary food. We need you to teach us and to model for us what it looks like to love our wives and to shepherd our children and to lead our families, 
to not be childish and wimpy and passive and selfish, but to imitate our Savior and lay down our lives for the good of other people. That does not come naturally to us. We need you to help us. We need you to show us the battle scars of a lifetime fighting sin, and we need you to recount the stories of grace that helped you overcome. We need you to show us what it looks like to love the local church, the bride of Christ, and when you see us drifting and starting not to show up, it should be you who calls us back into the fold. That's your job. And we know, we all know this is a high calling. Way, way too high for any of you to actually fulfill on your own. And so that's why we need you, above all things, to model for us what it looks like to look to Christ. We need you to model for us what it looks like to be helplessly dependent upon the power and grace of Christ. We need you to model for us what it looks like to be needy and desperate in prayer. Older man, I'm telling you, I'm giving you permission this morning to force your way into our lives, to force us to meet with you and to not take no for an answer, to take us to coffee and sit us down and make us bring our Bibles and make us open it and make us look at the text and make us read what's there and to give us something for our souls. What I'm asking you to do, man, is make the last years of your life living with Jesus count for eternity so that when it's our turn, we ourselves will know how to do the same. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we confess this morning there is nothing in the Christian life that is easy or simple or intuitive. And in anyone who thinks that it is, they don't get Christianity. Oh Lord, we are a helpless people this morning. We need grace. We need the power of Christ. We need transformation. We need your word to shape us and mold us and, and chisel us into the image of Christ. We can't do these things on our own. We need your power. We're so helpless, Lord. We wake up on the wrong side of the bed, spiritually speaking, every single morning. Clocks that need to be reset. We ask you, O oh Lord, that you would make us a people of the book, a people of the word, a people who don't just merely try to get through the day, but people who plead with you for power to live lives of great commission significance. Oh, awaken this church. Renew this church. Transform this church. We just want to be useful. We just want to be faithful. We just want to be effective. And that only happens when it is your grace that does it. And we give you so much thanks for who you are and all that you've accomplished in Christ. And it's in his matchless, mighty name that we pray. Amen.